Turn in your Bibles to um, three passages today. We're continuing our series in Amos. We're looking at the message of Amos. Uh, So one of our passages will be Amos. Our primary passage will be Amos chapter 5, beginning in verse 18, and then we will go through uh, Amos chapter 6. So Amos chapter 5 and 6. And then another passage, if you have your Bible, uh, a bookmark or a ribbon or something like that, you could turn to 2 Kings 17. We'll be reading some, um, some verses from 2 Kings 17 that tie in with this passage in Amos. And then the other passage I invite you to read is, uh, or turn to is in the New Testament in 1 Thessalonians. Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. So kind of keep a ribbon there, and that'll be chapter 5. So Amos 5 and 6, 2 Kings 17, 1 Thessalonians 5. And my challenge is now to do this in the next uh, 35 minutes or so. Um, So we saw, just to kind of recap, if you're just visiting us here, we're going through the The book of Amos is one of the earliest of the prophets. He was actually from Tekoa in the southern kingdom of Judah because this was at the time David's, the kingdom of David. Everybody knows about King David. And then they know about King Saul. And then Saul's descendants, the kingdom gets split in half to a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom is usually referred to as Israel. The southern kingdom is referred to as Judah. And uh, this is... uh, Amos, who's not a professional prophet by trade, he's, he's, a, he's a vine dresser. He's, he's also a sheep herder. He's kind of owns a, a, a sheep business. He has shepherds that are under him. And he's from Tekoa, yet the word of the Lord comes to him, goes to speak to the northern kingdom of Israel to let them know that an impending judgment was coming. And uh, so he does this, if you kind of, for those of you who were here for the first week, he does this by saying, here's a message for Israel. And then he starts to give judgments to all of the nations around Israel, kind of setting them up to say, they're like, ooh, God's going to judge my, my enemies or the other neighbors over here. Yeah, go get them, God. And then all of a sudden he's like, and now for three sins and four sins of Israel. And now he has judgment on Israel. And that's the, the subject of the rest of the book. So here's the rest of Amos. Chapters 3 through the first half of 5 are the three sermons. We looked at those uh, in the last couple of weeks. And then there are two woes, and we're looking at both of those woes today. And then in the next two weeks, we'll look at the concluding visions that he has to round out the book. It's a dark book. It's hopeful at the end. Um, So just mindful of that as we continue to proceed through here. Uh, so here's the passage. I invite you to turn first, uh, excuse me, Amos chapter 5, verses 18 through chapter 6, verse 14. So if you will follow along as I read. Amos 5:18. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? I hate, 
I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You, you shall take up Sukkoth, your king, and Kiun, your star god, your images that you made for yourselves, and I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. Woe to you, to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure on the mountains of Samaria, the notable men of the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes. Pass over to Kalnea and see, and from there go to Hamath the great, then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms? Or is their territory greater than your territory? O you who put far away the day of disaster and bring near the seat of violence. Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and like David invent for themselves instruments of music who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, they shall now be the first of those who go into exile, and the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. The Lord God has sworn by himself, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate his strongholds and I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. And if 10 men remain in one house, they shall die. And when one's relative, the one who anoints him for burial shall take him up to bring the bones out of the house and shall say to him who is in the innermost parts of the house, is there still anyone with you? He shall say no. And he shall say, Silence, we must not mention the name of the Lord. For behold, the Lord commands, and the great house shall be struck down into fragments, and the little house into bits. Do horses run on rocks? Does one plow there with oxen? But you have turned justice into poison, and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. You who rejoice in Lodabar and say, have we not by our own strength captured Carnaim for ourselves? For behold, I will raise up a nation against you, a nation, O house of Israel, declares the Lord, the God of hosts. And they shall oppress you from Labo Hamath to the brook of the Arabah. This is the reading of God's word. And we say, thanks be to God. God, indeed, we give you thanks for this word that's from ancient of days old, and we thank you that yet it is still relevant and speaks to us today. Help us to, to see and understand this message that you had given through Amos to the northern kingdom of Israel in their situation, and may it 
alert our minds. May it cause us to to be alert and to pay attention and to hear and to heed and see how this is fulfilled and what warning it still has for the world today. So we pray you do that in Christ's name and all God's people said, amen and amen. Amen, indeed. So we'll look at this. Uh, I said this is in two, two woes. So we're going to look at two parts of this woe. Here's the first part of the woe in chapter 5. And the main emphasis of this woe is the false worship of Israel. This woe is a declaration of, uh, let, let me define a couple of words here before we kind of get into the main teaching here. So let me define two words. I'm going to define woe and then I'm going to define the day of the Lord. Woe and the day of the, the Lord. Uh, the, the, the word woe is, is an uh, onomatopoeia. You know what that is, right? Where the, 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 the word is what describing the sound that such a thing makes. Like, you know, woe. Um, what's another example of an onomatopoeia? Huh? Bang, right? So it's, you know, it's the word B-A-N-G, but it's supposed to make the sound of the sound that it's describing. Uh, so bang. Isn't there another one? What's another onomatopoeia? Buzz, crunch. Oh, you guys are good. This is going great. Um, so this is, whoa, oh, you know, this is, that's the sound here. And it's kind of in this, just a small little Hebrew word, whoa, but it's supposed to mean like, oh, and it's a cry and a long, if you were to really draw it out, there would be lots of O's to it. Because it's supposed to be like mourning. We just saw uh, kind of the funeral song in the previous message uh, in chapter 5 at the end of 4 and into 5. This is kind of like the response now, like the wailing of, of a funeral. And so this is a cry of deep pain and deep distress. And it's right there encapsulated in that word woe. Because it's, what's happening is essentially the death of a nation, a very prosperous at this time, uh, a very uh, strong militarily, a very strong financial, financially nation, and yet the impending doom is coming. And the Lord is saying you should be wailing in deep distress. So that is behind this word woe. And here's the reason for the woe. And this is the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord, you'll see in several of the prophets, Amos refers to the day of the Lord quite a bit. Uh, but you see the day of the Lord in the prophets in many different places in Jeremiah and Isaiah. Um, and this is the day that the Lord God has promised he will come and return and set up his his kingdom. He will judge all of the wicked and he will rescue all of the righteous fully and finally. And so it's a day of depending on your perspective one of two things it's from the perspective of the righteous who are being rescued and delivered God's people are being delivered this is a time to rejoice and to be glad because the Lord himself will come uh, as the warrior of an army notice the, the phrase that uh, occurred in here too the God of hosts the Lord will come as a warrior and to vanquish all the enemies and so the uh, those who are on the Lord's side will rejoice that the rescue will have happened and has taken place. So in the minds of a lot of uh, 
the people of Israel in the Old Testament, they were hoping for the day when all of the enemies would be vanquished. So the one perspective is this, it's a source of hope. It's, it's something to look forward to. It's claiming this promise that we're given that the wicked and the evil enemies will be vanquished. But the day of the Lord has a second meaning depending on the other perspective, and that's the perspective of the evil and the wicked doer. From their perspective, this is not a good day. This is a dark day. It's a day of darkness and not light. It's a day of gloom, he says, because that's what will happen to the wicked and the evildoer. Now, Israel knew of this day of the Lord. And they were looking forward to it. And that was part of the problem here. So here's this, the first point you should notice underneath this woe of false worship. The day of the Lord is not desirable for the despised. And here's the thing. Israel is the despised. Hence the woe. Israel is the one who is despised. The day of the Lord in the mind of a lot of the people of Israel at this time was they were was one of rejoicing and happiness. The Lord's going to come and he's going to vanquish his, uh, our enemies. But what the Lord is saying through Amos to them is, no, no, no. You need to woe, cry, wail because the day of the Lord is coming. And for you, it's not going to be good. They were badly misunderstanding uh, they were badly misunderstanding their role and their place at this point. It was a, a tremendous lack of self-awareness for the entire nation of Israel because of their pride and their arrogance. So woe is the appropriate response here. Now, why are they de despised here? We saw in verses uh, 8 through 20, the day of the Lord is not, um, is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it. The Lord... Uh, is despising Israel, and here's why. Here's the second one. God despises shallow, empty, fake, ritualistic worship. God despises shallow, empty, fake, ritualistic worship. Notice verses 21 through 24. I hate, I despise your feasts. Now, depending on your translation, this, the, the construction there, it could be like an intensifier. I deeply hate or I adamantly despise. Or it could just be I hate, I despise. It's like he just doesn't even finish the sentence. His, he's so, the Lord is so upset with Israel's attitude toward worship. I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. The tragedy of Israel was not that they were indifferent to worship. The tragedy of Israel is that they were just going through the motions of worship. Notice all the things that they were engaged in. Verse 21, solemn assemblies. There were, there were many uh, annual feasts. Uh, there were weekly feasts, of course, with the Sabbath. But there were many annual feasts that were... Um, prescribed for the people of Israel in the Old Testament, but three in particular were, were ones that were um, pilgrimage feasts where you, you came to Jerusalem for these feasts. And these were uh, Passover, 
And then the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread that immediately followed it. This was at the beginning of the barley harvest. And this recalled, it marked the exodus of God's people from their bondage of slavery in Egypt. And so God gave them this Passover feast and the Feast of Unleavened Bread after that to mark that. That was the first one. The second solemn assembly was the day of Pentecost or the, the first fruits of the wheat harvest. And this is usually uh, associated with the day of the giving of the Ten Commandments, the giving of the law, where the Lord God made a covenant with uh, Israel on Mount Sinai. So the people of Israel were to come back for Passover to Jerusalem. They were to come back to the Pentecost. And then also at the end of the harvest season, there's the Feast of Tabernacles, or is called Sukkot. And that's the, the, the end of the harvest season. And this would be, um, um, there, so there were other, there were other uh, feasts that were done, but these are the three main assembly ones. And I think this is the one that the Lord is referring to in verse 21, these solemn assemblies. And he's saying, I hate, I despise your feasts and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Now, hold on a second there. Didn't you prescribe these feasts, Lord? These are your feasts. What, what was Israel's problem? The problem was their heart in their approach in doing them. Notice uh, a couple of other things they were engaged in. Verse two, verse 22. Notice burnt offerings, grain offerings, and peace offerings of fattened animals. The offerings in Leviticus, and if you, how many were here in the Leviticus series several years ago? We went through the book of Leviticus, and we looked at the five major offerings uh, in the first five chapters. There was the burnt offering where the whole thing was consumed on the, on the uh, altar. And then in chapter 2, it talks about Leviticus chapter 2. It talks about the grain offering that was offered. And then there's a fellowship offering. And then this is the one that is shared. They, that they actually eat part of the offering. Part of it is consumed by the Lord. And they get to take the other part. And then there's the purification offering or the offering for sins in chapter 4 and 5. And then there's the reparations offerings. There were five different types of offerings there. Um, just might be helpful for us to remind ourselves about those offerings. One was, this is given to God. There's the, the grain and the fellowship. Then the Lord is, uh, because we have confessed our sins and brought it to him, he restores fellowship with us. We get to, to eat and partake. But then we need purification for our sins. And then we need to make right the guilt and the consequence of our sins. That's what's pictured in all of those. But what does God say? Even though you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look to them. Now, wait a second. The Lord God had given them these offerings. Why won't he accept them? Because of the heart of the people who were giving them. Notice what else they do in verse 23. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. The singing. So notice Israel was still doing the worship that God had called them to do. But clearly, their heart was not right and their life was not right. Because notice verse 24. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream seems to suggest that the way that they were treating one another 
and other Israelites through oppression, committing sins against others, and then an overall unrighteous way of living seems to, in the Lord is saying here, I, then if you don't get that right, don't even come to me with these, with your, your, your bad-hearted worship. And he has an absolute indignation over this. God hates false, empty, ritualistic worship. Isaiah gives a similar pronouncement here, who is a contemporary of, of Amos's in Isaiah chapter 11. He says, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of your burnt offerings of ram, rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. The, the indication here is that it's not the blood of the offerings that they're offering. It's the, the blood of the violence and the unrighteousness that they had been committing. So the problem wasn't the feasts themselves. The problem was their heart and it was their life. So God has the first call to woe for them because of their false worship. And then the third part to notice about this, false worship will bring eviction and exile. Did you bring to me, verse 25, sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You shall take up Sikath, your king, and Kiun, your star god, your images that you made for yourselves. Okay, now here, this is, that's the idea behind this, this Sikath, your king, and your Kiun, your star god. That not only were they doing the burnt offerings and sacrifices, but apparently they were mixing the worship of the cultural things that were going along. So they, they would offer to the Lord. They would bring the sacrifices as described in Leviticus. They would gather together for these solemn assemblies. But then they would start to, in their, you know, their coalitions and their military alliances with the other nations, they would start to bring in, oh, that's kind of an interesting little idea to worship this Kiyun God or the Sikuth God, these gods and deities of the nations around them. They would start to bring those in. And uh, notice the indictment of those images. He goes, these are images that you made for yourself. It should call to mind what happened when Moses was on the mountain and the people of Israel goes, where's Moses? Aaron, what should we do? And he's like, all right, give me your gold. You know, and then he, it says, with an engraving tool, made a golden calf. And he says, here, Israel is the God who brought you up out of the slave, uh, out of Egypt. Remember, we saw Jeroboam had done the similar thing, except he, he went up there and he made two of them, two golden, golden calves. 
So that's the issue here. It's not so much the identity of who is the Sikuth and who's this Kiyud. It's clearly the deities from around that they carved images for. And again, this picture of Israel doing what God had brought them out of Egypt for. The judgment that he was having on Egypt, they come out into the land and then they end up doing. What they're liberated from, now they become the perpetrators. Notice verse verse 27. So here's the verdict. And I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. There's the God of hosts again. And the, the beyond Damascus, remember this is one of the nations that he rails against in the very opening chapter as he goes around to all the nations that are around them. Damascus would be the, the major city and nation there that separates between where Israel was in the northern kingdom and where uh, Assyria is uh, uh, from. So they're, they're kind of like the, the midpoint. Damascus is in between the kingdom of Assyria and Israel. And he says, I'm going to send you beyond Damascus is a, is a verdict to say you're going to go beyond to Assyria. When Amos is saying these words, it's about 740 B.C., roughly. We don't know exactly, but it's roughly in that time. Uh, In 722 B.C., Assyria conquers and besieges Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel, and captures it. And this is why I want you to turn to 2 Kings chapter chapter 17, because that, in 2 Kings, kind of gives the historical... um, Description of what is happening there. I encourage you to read all of Second Kings chapter 17 because this is the fall of the northern kingdom here. But let me just read a couple of verses here and see if we can identify uh, some things here that are uh, the cause behind this false worship. Second Kings, let's start... Verse 6, in the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria, and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria. Okay, that's the reference that we just saw in verse 27. And I will send you into exile beyond Damascus. And placed them in Halah and on the, uh, the Habor, the river of Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes. Notice verse 7. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel and in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. Notice verse 9. 9 through 12. And the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God the things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in all their towns from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves pillars and asherim on every high hill and under every green tree. And there they made offerings on all the high places. Where did they get this idea? As the nations did, whom the Lord carried away before them. 
And they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger. And they served idols of which the Lord had said to them, you shall not do this. So the Lord sent prophets to warn them, Amos being the first in those verse 14. But they would not listen, but were stubborn as their fathers had been, who did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised the statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers, uh, the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols and became false. And then what did they do? And they followed the nations that were around them concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves metal images of two calves. Remember, that's the Jeroboam incident. And they made an Asherah and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served Baal. And they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. So the Assyrians took the Israelites away, brought them to um, then they the king also assigned Assyrians to be to live in there among them in Samaria. And then verse 33, jump down to verse 33. So they feared the Lord God, but also served their own gods after the manner of the nations from whom they had been carried away. Are you getting the picture here of this false worship? False worship is worship that resembles God and his commands and what he requires, but is infused with the bits of the surrounding culture. It's worshiping Yahweh, but let's throw some other things that the nations do in there as well. One commentator said they accepted uh, they accepted other notions of God common to the culture in which they lived. So what's the issue with the worship here? There's, it's it's wrong in a couple of ways. There's two uh, ways that this worship is depicted as unacceptable. First of all, the proper forms of worship could be rejected if the worshiper's life is not characterized by righteousness and injustice to others. So there were parts of what Israel did that were prescribed by the Lord, but because their life didn't match it and in their own personal righteousness and in their treatment of others. And then the second reason it is rejected is because they... Um, they did not distinguish between the proper worship of God and improper conceptions of God. Deceptive forms of, of worship. And so hence the, the woes of this passage. Here's the second half. Here's the second one, chapter six. The second one is, the first, one, first woe in chapter 5 is the false worship. The second one is false security. False security. And the second woe is a lament because of the complacency and affluence um, will bring destruction. Complacency and affluence will bring destruction. Notice verses 1 through 7. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure in on the mountains of on the mountain of Samaria, the notable men of the first nations to whom 
the house of Israel comes. Now, remember, uh, remember, we saw in Amos earlier in Amos, there was an indictment against um, the the women in particular in chapter four. Who the, when he refers to them as the cows of Bashan and um, that you make your your husbands bring you bring you wine here, you have now the judgment and description on the the men, the notable men of the first nations. And then he says, pass over to Chaldea and see, and from there go to Hamath the Great, go down to Gath of the Philistines. Here's the main issue. Are you better than these kingdoms or is their territory greater than your territory? Or you who put far away the disaster and bring near the seat of violence? Woe. Now notice he says here, woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall. This is, this is affluence, but, but this isn't just affluence. This is affluence by injustice. This is affluence by injustice and affluence by unrighteousness of which Israel is guilty. Notice the ease and complacency that they have in life. Verse 5, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and like David invent for themselves instruments and music. The picture here is one of revelry. It's just happy days. Verse 6, who drink wine in bowls. Drunkenness. Who anoint themselves with the finest oils but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. So revelry, pleasure, enjoying entertainment, life, and all of those things with no regard to the, to the, the wickedness and unrighteousness that their life was characterized by. The foundation was crumbling. And therefore, they are going to be the first to go away to exile. So complacency and affluence will bring destruction. And then second, God's oath of destruction on the prideful. So false worship in chapter 5, false security in chapter 6. And this false security finds its, its root in pride. Notice there's kind of a sequence that goes, there's, there's affluence, things go really well. The Lord seems to like be blessing you with all things like that. And then you're like, wow. Things are going really well. I must have done some things right. And then it causes you to misplace your trust then and your confidence in these things instead of the Lord. And this leads to complacency. And all of this is the recipe for false security. Notice verse 8. The Lord has sworn by himself, declares the Lord, the God of hosts. I abhor the pride of Jacob. And I hate his strongholds and I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. And if 10 men remain in the one house, they shall die. And when one's relative, the one who anoints him for burial shall take him up to bring the bones out of the house. They shall say to him, who is in the innermost parts of the house? Is there anyone with you? He shall say no. And he shall say silence. We must not mention the name of the Lord. The picture here is every last one of them, every single house is going to be completely emptied. For behold, the Lord commands and he will, the great house will be struck down into fragments, the little house into bits. 
And then notice this in verse 13. And, and this is what they had done. Do horses run on rocks? Does one plow where there's no oxen? But you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. We saw this in a couple of chapters. This bitter fruit, you've taken justice and you've completely perverted it. And you who rejoice in Lodabar, who say, and then notice this, maybe you underline this in your Bibles. Have we not by our own strength captured Carnaim for ourselves? That's the indictment. And so the Lord says, I'm going to raise up a nation against you. And he's going to go from, from Labo Hamath in the north to the brook of the Arabah way in the south. That whole land, we're going to take you all away. Why? Because you, you go ahead. Why? Have I not by my own, look at, look at by our own strength. Look at what we were able to accomplish. In verse, verse 13. Is there more, any more a dangerous statement than have we not by our own strength blanked for ourselves? So it's the pride, the false security that comes from pride. It's a warning. And Proverbs. Toward the scorner, he is scornful, but to the humble, he gives favor. It's a very important proverb. It's quoted twice in the New Testament by James. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God opposed Israel. Why? Because of their false worship and because their false sense of security of their own pride in their own accomplishments. And Peter, likewise, we saw this several weeks ago. When we went through first Peter, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders, close all yourselves, all of you with humility toward one another for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The Apostle Paul writes that what was written down, uh, hap what happened to Israel was written down for our instruction, for our learning, for our encouragement. God has an oath of destruction for the pride, the false sense of security that comes upon them. So let me just kind of looking at both of those together. The false worship and the false sense of security. And going back to this idea of the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord was not a delight for Israel. Now, um, there still is yet, when you read in the New Testament, you still, you still have the idea that the, the real, ultimate, the full, the final day of the Lord is yet to come. And that is tied to when Christ himself comes back. The real, ultimate, and final day of the Lord will come. That's the one that Israel was rejoicing in. Yes, when all of our enemies will be vanquished. That has yet to fully happen. That will happen when Christ himself comes back but they got a preview a small taste of the dark side of the day of the lord in their earthly life this is really what happens to israel a preview of what will happen when christ himself comes back and the book of Revelation gives us a good picture of this. It shows the real and final day of the Lord is yet to come. 
In Revelation chapter 6, in chapter 9, in chapter 14, in chapter 19, you read those and you get a picture of the day of the Lord that's coming back. In this preview of the day of the Lord for Israel, Israel was the target because of their wickedness and their unrighteousness and their pride. In the full and final day of the Lord that is coming when Christ returns, the whole world is the target. Why? Because of their false worship and their false sense of security and their pride. Now, does this seem hopeless? Well, to those in Christ, it is not. And this is why I want you to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. First Thessalonians chapter five. Where the apostle Paul writes to a church that was had some questions concerning the day of the Lord and his coming back. And did it already happen? Is, is it going to happen? Is it ever going to happen? Some some scoffers were saying it wasn't like we saw in in uh, in Peter's letters. But notice what the Apostle Paul says, verses 1 through 11. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, meaning so they, they basically had a question and Paul's answering, okay, uh, you've written a letter, you'd asked about this. Now concerning this item in which you'd written about, now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that what? The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Israel knew this, right? They were saying, there's peace and security. We'll drink wine by the bowls full. We'll, we'll cash out a, totally at rest and sleep on our beds made of ivory. While people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains. Verse 4, but you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Israel lost track. They lost track of their life. They got into false worship and a false sense of security and they got drunk and they fell asleep. And Paul's saying here to the church, to believers in Jesus Christ, that we, were not, we are not to be like that. 
Because we know that the day of the Lord is coming. They're in darkness. They're asleep. They revel at the nighttime. But we are alert and awake, knowing that the day of the Lord is coming. It's not be like what happened to Israel, he says. They lost track. They fell asleep. We are alert and we are awake. Why? Because our worship is true by worshiping the one true Christ. And our security is found in Christ alone. Is that true for you? If so, amen and amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are grateful to you for your word. We know that you have acted in history with your people, Israel, that despite your pleas and your, your calls for them to repent, their stubborn and prideful hearts kept them on the path of rebellion against you. God, help us to purge the ways in which we have wrong conceptions of you incorporated into the life and worship of the church. Purge us of those, those things. May we not uh, embrace worldly things that are at odds with what you have revealed to us in your word. And God, drive home to us the assurance and security that we have, not in anything that we have done, but in the assurance and security of the final and full and completed work of Jesus Christ and through faith in him. Help us to fix our eyes upon him And fill us with your spirit that we might bear the fruit of righteousness in our lives. We ask that you do that here in your people. And it's in the name of Christ and by the power of the spirit that we pray. And all God's people said, amen and amen. Uh, friends, stand for a closing benediction. A reminder, the offering is over there. And then make sure you gather in your cars. And um, Joe, will you line us? Make sure. Go oh, Joe's going to sit up. Jared's, Jared's yep. Jared's doing that. So line up behind Jared somehow. So um, now, brothers and sisters, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the fellowship uh, that we share in the Holy Spirit be with all of you as you go. Thank you.